Good morning. Good morning. And welcome, everyone. Let's open class with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the way you run your universe, the way you have created things to operate. We thank you for Jesus. We ask for your spirit to join us today, draw hearts together, help us to grow, to be more like you and more effective in sharing this healing message with the world that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. The only announcement I want to make today is just to remind everybody online that we have officially changed our address to our new street address here at the building. So if you have any of our materials or cards with the old P.O. Box address on it, kind of toss those. Uh, If we don't have the new cards yet, they are on the way, so you can get new cards if you want those cards uh, with our street address. And the street address is on our website if you need to look that up, and it's also in the notes. So we're doing the last lesson in the quarterly, the three cosmic messages, uh, and the lesson 13 is entitled, A Blaze with God's Glory, and the memory text is from Revelation 18.1 from the New King James, which reads, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And so, of course, the question is, illuminated with the glory, Uh, obviously God's glory, but, but what is God's glory? And and the lesson, I think, does a good job for us in Wednesday's lesson. If you turn to Wednesday's lesson, uh, it says in Wednesday's lesson, God's glory is his character. The earth will be filled with the glory of God when we are filled with the love of God and our characters are changed by redeeming love. Revealing his love in our personal lives reveals his glory his character to the world. The last message to be proclaimed to the world engulfed in spiritual darkness carried by the three angels in the midst of heaven is fear God and give glory to him. Isn't that well said? Yeah, that is extremely well said. So as we consider this, we reveal God's glory by by living his character out in how we treat others. When... When did Jesus bring the greatest glory to his Father? He was always glorifying the Father, but is there a time when it, like, peaked? Well, let's look at Jesus' prayer in John 17. Starting in verse 1, we'll read 1 through 6 from the NIV. It says, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to those You have given him, and now this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. If God's glory is his character... What does this text mean? How is Jesus going to be glorified? He's asking, Father, the time has come to glorify me so that I may glorify you. The time has come. Some have suggested after reading just this section, you know, pick a little here, pick a little, that that this is talking about the transfiguration when, when Jesus will be transfigured and be glorified. Uh, I don't think that quite fits if you just keep reading John in the context. That was verse 1 through 6. And, if, and, and you go down through his whole prayer. Jesus is in prayer here. He finishes his whole prayer in John 17. And the very next words after he gets up off his knees, finishes praying, in John's context, we read John 18.1, the very next verse. And this is what he said. When he had finished praying... Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials and the chief priests and Pharisees. So if, if we allow John's context to kind of lead us, he's praying that the time has come to glorify his Father so that he, so for the Father to glorify him so that he can glorify his Father. And as soon as he finishes that prayer, what happens? He's arrested? Betrayed? Mocked? Falsely accused? And so what we see happening 
His own people reject him. His closest friends abandon him. His church turns on him. He is lied about. The judicial system is perverted and perjury is perpetrated against him. The Jewish officials break their own laws, conducting an illegal court at night. Uh, the high priest rends his garments uh, the, and acts the role of the accuser instead of the role of the defender, which is his job. The religious leaders had him beaten and mocked. They solicit the pagan authorities to reject, convict, and crucify him. He was publicly stripped, humiliated, tortured, and repeatedly tempted to use his power to prove his authority. We get a sense of what's happening here. Father, the time has come for you to glorify me so that I can glorify you. It's the time. And what events happen next? John 13 tells us that Jesus had been given all power. All power and authority had been given him, and he got up and washed dirty feet, and then the events of the upper room, and then his prayer, and then his arrest. So he has all power. He told Peter, I can call 12 legions of angels if I so choose. I have that power. He wasn't helpless. When When the detachment of soldiers came, was he powerless? No, he wasn't powerless. He had all power. All power in heaven and earth had been given to him. But the time has come for him to glorify his father. To be glorified by his father so he can glorify his father. But Jesus restrains the use of power. Is there any glory being revealed in that? Philippians 2, he submitted unto death, even death, death of a cross. So what is the glory that Jesus asked the Father to bring to him so that Jesus could glorify the Father? How would you describe it? If you, if you take the, the historical account that we have occurring here, what is the glory that he is receiving that he's also giving? Character. 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 Char- methods, principles. How one uses one's power and authority. Jesus fully, completely, totally lived out God's love. Lived it out. He chose self-sacrificial love instead of the so-called human justice of using power to punish sin, evil, and injustice. That long list I went through, it was all injustice, wasn't it? It was all wrong. It was all false. It was fraudulent. It was corrupt. Did Jesus use righteous power to punish real injustice and wrongdoing? He did not. He left them free. This is glorious. This is glory. He refused to defend himself. He refused to use power to protect himself. He chose to do what was best for others in this weekend. He speaks words of encouragement, hope, and promise to a dying thief. In the middle of his torment, in the middle of his abuse, think, put yourself in it. You get arrested fraudulently. You get falsely accused. You have, you have um, planted, st- stuff planted to make it look like you did something. Uh, perjury committed. All kinds of things done. Beaten without cause. And your focus is on others. The thief. He needs to be encouraged. Even the people killing him. He forgives those who are abusing him. He ensures his mother is cared for when he's not there anymore. John? Your mother. Mother, your son. Remember? He administers, understand, he's administering God's justice of love and refuses to use power to administer the imperial justice of the world. God is love and he loves his enemies, prays for those who persecutes, blesses those who assault him. He reveals a glory, a beauty, a righteousness, a truth, that is beyond human imagining. It is the reality of who creator God is. God is love. And when is love, this type of love, most fully, clearly, powerfully, perfectly revealed? When all things are going well, when everyone is in adoration of you, when everybody's doing the right thing? Or does this come out more potently, more magnanimously, in the face of injustice. Father, the time has come for you to glorify me so that I may glorify you. 
And we are called, with the message that we're reading today, to give glory to God. At a time in human history, when the rest of the world is going to be righteous and virtuous and and giving witness to God, or, or a time in the world when we see the beastly powers of injustice and abuse and everything that you saw happen to Christ will be happening in the world. Yes. So I did an intensive study of all the times glory is mentioned in the Bible, and we also, as redeemed witnesses, are also God's glory. Yes, we give him glory, and we are his glory. Yes, we, we glorify his name as his glory is reproduced in us, his character is reproduced in us. Yes. By living out God's character of love and how we treat others, we are to be truth bearers, be living embodiments of God's methods, principles, designs, protocols, his character. We bless those who curse us, Romans chapter 12. We bless, we, don't, we do not curse. We forgive those who wrong us. We love our enemies so that we may be sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. You know, that, you know the saying. You've heard that it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies, but I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends the, the rain upon the, uh, the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love only those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your brothers, how are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is our call to love, not the ones who love us first, but to love those who are persecuting us. Paul wrote to the Philippians, If you have any, this is starting Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, notice where he's focusing. If you have any of this, of this transformation, I mean, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in, the, in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is the glory? The time has come to glorify me that I may glorify you. You've portrayed what Christ did through the Gethsemane and the cross experience. What was the father watching his son, and what was the father's experience? Do you see evidence in Scripture of what the father's experience was through that weekend? God was in the son, reconciling the world to himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son but gave him up, how will he not along with him give us all things? Uh, This was a joint, cooperative effort of the Godhead taking on different roles to achieve the outcome. And you say, why did the Father abandon his Son on the cross? Because the only way Christ could complete his mission, and there's a lot of reasons why it had to happen, we won't go into those at the moment, he had to die. And a person cannot die if they're connected to the source of life. Jesus stayed away from Lazarus, if you remember, for a particular reason. So Lazarus fall into the first death, and Jesus would go resurrect him and give the demonstration of his, of his power over death. If had he gone early, he wouldn't have died. He's the source of life. So the Father's abandoning him is not a rejection. It's a cooperative, premeditated plan of the Godhead for Christ to accomplish the purpose for which Christ was sent into the world, which was to, by his death, he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to life. So he was... He just, by his death, he destroyed him who holds the power of death. It is the devil. It was the purpose of destroying the sin infection, 
Satan's power, restoring God's law of love and life into the species human. And it was only possible if the father separated and allowed him to go through that experience, which was quite So he was grieving the, the breakup and the agony they, that they've had for, from eternity that we can't even possibly understand. It was agonizing. Now, if you value on White's writing, she said that the father was crucified with the son. And if you're a parent and you had to watch your child be beaten, tortured, and killed, or you could protect your child and allow it to happen to you instead, which, which actually causes you more suffering? <laughs> That's right. So the father suffered. And the father did let his son go. For the purpose of completing their mission. Not as a wrathful thing, but as a... Well, it depends on how you define wrath. Well, we're going to come to wrath in the class because it's in part of the third angel. So let's, but, but, but not as an infliction of harm thing, but as the purpose of accomplishing the necessary cure, remedy, solution to the problem thing. I got you. Go back to that last text there. Uh, this, I know this is a little off the subject, but we are so used to, and we even call for it, amen. Amen. You know what? And that's, that's the only thing we say. But right there in this text, it says every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. Yes. To the glory. That, that's, well, it, but that's, it, you don't have to say that. When you say Jesus is Lord, that has brought glory to his name. And why we don't do that, there are some congregations that do that. And we sort of look down on them. Oh, they're charismatic, or they're this, they're out of control. And so we just say, amen, Do I, can I hear an amen? I never say amen, except at the end of a prayer, in the name of Jesus, amen. But I usually say, Jesus is Lord. And that's right, Jesus is Lord. So, to our, me- to our message. The lesson links the glory of God's character to the third angel's message. We just went down now, This, and I think I made a case, and I wanted to build that platform. The glory of God is his character of self-sacrificial love. Have I made the case? Okay. The lesson links, and I think rightly so. I agree with the link, but I want you to tell me how. The lesson links the glory of God's character to the third angel's message. Let's read the third angel's message, and I want you to tell me where you see in this message the glory of God that we just defined as his character of self-sacrificial love. So this is the third angel's message from Revelation 14, 9 to 12, NIV. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives the mark on the, on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured out full strength in the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his, in his image, for anyone who receives the mark of uh, of his name. This calls for patient endurance on part of the saints who obey the commandments of God and remain faithful to Jesus. If you haven't read our magazine, The Final Message of Mercy to the World, The Three Angels, um, I encourage you to get one. They're free in our lobby. If you can download this PDF or read it online from our website, if you have a U.S. postal address or Australia, um, South Africa, you can also get those at those links on our website. But I encourage you, we're going to go over this. Did you hear the glory of God, his character of self-sacrificial love in that message? Is it harder to see there than other places? Yes, and yet this is part of the final message of mercy that is light in the world, isn't it? This is the message that, that the Adventist church believes is to go to the world and lighten the world. And we read from the quarterly that the quarterly says the final message is the truth about God's character of love, and they link it with this message, but they don't actually explain how. I agree with all of that. I agree. This is, this is the message. This is God's character of love. But how? Well, our, our magazine will explain it, but let's do a short overview of what it teaches. Step one, you have to remember that the three angels' messages are a three-step or stage message. It is a message that builds with each subsequent message. I just read the third in a series of three. If you cannot or do not properly understand the first message and don't understand the second message, you won't be able to properly understand the third message. You have to understand they come in a series. 
first, second, and third. So we always need to go back and make sure we're understanding the first and second message before we actually try to understand the third. If you just pluck it out without having that basis that comes first, you won't understand it. Step two, determine before attempting to decipher the messages, first, second, or third, how do you understand God's law and government works? If you believe God's law and government works like human law and government, made up rules requiring the rule giver to use his power to inflict punishment for rule breaking, you will interpret all this in a distorted and perverse fantasy, non-reality way. You will create a false version of God and his government that actually is in the image of Satan and his, and his allegations against God. That's what will happen. And you'll take the three angels, but you'll take them in a way that represents Satan's character as God's. And that's often what has happened with these messages. And that's why the first message, we'll get to it in a moment, calls us back to worship the creator who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of water. We have to come back to creator worship. Step three, determine the rules of interpretation. Bible interprets itself. God's character of love never changes, so no interpretations will make God in character to be anything other than Jesus revealed him to be. And God's law never changes. It's the same, and it never can be appealed, amended, or, or, or changed because it is the, an expression of his character of love. Step four, humbly ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten your mind to truth. Acknowledge, we, we acknowledge our finiteness and admit our eagerness to be corrected by the spirit of truth and led into all truth if there's current ideas that are, are not as accurate as they could be. So these are the four steps that I, I tend to do when I, I pursue these things. Then start with the first angel's message and study it, comparing the rest of Scripture, uh, the, the truths that God has already revealed. It's okay to use commentaries and get input from other people, but remember, commentaries are not inspired. It is uh, recommended to study with other humble people who are interested in growing in the truth and, and compare ideas, but ultimately come back to... As Paul says in Romans 14, every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. You must come to the conclusion for yourself that you believe is most consistent with God's word. So let's look at the first angel, Revelation 14, 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those living on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. The first message starts with the eternal gospel. So what is the eternal good news? And I've asked this question all over the world, and you probably have heard it many times from pulpits. And the answer you will get almost always, Jesus died to save us from our sins. Now let's be clear. It is absolutely true Jesus died to save us from our sins that Jesus is the only way and means of salvation, that no human can save themselves without Jesus. And that is certainly incredibly good news. There's no question about that. But the question is, is this truth that we just went over, the good news about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus that makes salvation available to human beings, is that the eternal gospel? Or is that good news about Jesus and what he did for us an outworking of the eternal gospel. It's a part of. A part of. Well, let's ask some questions, see if it doesn't clarify that. What is the good news that has been true, eternally true? Both will it be true in eternity future, but it was also true in eternity past, even before the earth was made. Is it good news that Jesus died as our Savior? Is this the eternal good news that the angels had available to them in heaven when Lucifer started his rebellion? They didn't have that available to them then. But was there eternal good news available to them in heaven at that time that could have protected them had they embraced it and not rejected it? Yes, there was eternal good news there. What is the news? that the universe has doubted, but is foundational to life, health, and happiness. That God is not as Satan accused him to be. That he is love, and that, his character is freedom, and love, and liberty. She's saying the good news about God, that he's not like Satan has said he, he is. When Lucifer rebelled in heaven, 
Did his lies about God cause some truth to be doubted and some reality to be set aside for an alternate view that Satan was advancing, at least in, at least in the minds of a third of the angels? Did some truth get set aside by Satan's, mis- Satan's misrepresentations? And Satan's alternate view resulted in pain, suffering that sin brings. And thus there was some good news that needed to be found and identified that would refute this alternate view Satan was put. Wasn't there some good news that was still true, but now was hidden by Satan's lies? So the good news that dispels the lies of Satan, wins us back to trust, uh, solidifies the angels that remain loyal into their loyalty. Isn't that the good news about God's character of love? And that same character of love, that same good news, is manifested in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus because that's who God is. He did not think equality with God was something to be grasped because that's the good news of who God is. He's self-sacrificial. And this is what Jesus prayed right before his crucifixion that we already read this morning, that he finished the work the Father had gave him to do. He made... He revealed him or made him known to men. The good news. And then Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we use are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. The eternal, and we take captive every thought, the eternal good news that's eternally true because God never changes. Today, he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, is the good news of who God is that refutes the lies that Satan has alleged him to be. And the Bible gives us various texts on this. God is love. Anyone who's seen Jesus, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. And John, in the prayer we read, Jesus prayed, life eternal is that they might know you, the only true God. This is the good news, the truth about God. If we don't understand the good news about God, his character, his methods, how reality works as God built it to work, then we misunderstand everything else. And what idea directly impacts and determines how we conceive of God and his character? There's one idea that if you accept it, it immediately corrodes and corrupts your conception of God. It's how we conceive of his law. If you conceive of his law functioning like human law, made up rules, you invariably and are powerless to stop your conclusion that therefore God, in order to be just, must use his power to punish and inflict harm and even death upon unrepentant rule breakers. God becomes the source of pain, suffering, and death as just punishment for sin, and therefore the plan of salvation has to be something done to God to assuage, propitiate, expiate, talk him down, give him some anger management classes. Something, because he can't restrain it. If sin comes in his presence, he loses it, man. He, he can't handle it. Can't handle sin in his presence. Got to have somebody there to plead to him. You have Mary and the saints too, you know. And then some, some traditions have Mary and the saints pleading. This is a corruption, it's a perversion, and it all stems out of accepting the single lie. God's law works like human law. Made up rules requiring affliction. And this is why we are called to worship him who made the heavens. We are called back to worship the creator. He builds space, time, energy, matter, life. His laws are the laws upon which reality function. Transgressing them takes one out of harmony with life and results in ruin and death unless the creator does everything necessary to restore us back into harmony with the law, fix us. And so there's several ways to see this. When Adam sinned in Eden, did God get changed? Yes or no? No. Did God's law change? No. Did the condition of Adam and Eve change? Then the plan of salvation is not necessary to do something to God. It's not necessary to do something to God's law. It is necessary to do something to the condition 
of human beings in there. When you, once you get that, you immediately, hopefully you know your Bible, and all the Bible texts are dropping in. Boom, 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 boom. What are all the Bible text metaphors and, and, and descriptions of the plan of salvation? I will take out the heart of stone from the sinner and put in a heart of flesh. We'll have circumcision of the heart of the sinner by the Holy Spirit. We will write my law in the heart of the sinner. You will be reborn. You'll be recreated. You'll die to the old man. You'll be raised in a new life. In other words, all the metaphors of Scripture are not about doing something to God. They're all about doing something to sinners. Amen. Well, except, except the third angel's message, which talks about the fury of God and the cup of his wrath. Yes. I mean, that, those are so confusing. So we're going to get to those in just a minute. It's in our lesson for today. <laughs> but doesn't this message that I just read say that we are to fear God because the hour of his judgment has come? Doesn't it say that? Yes. It certainly does. And this is, if you have the human law model, it is taught, and it has been taught to me in Bible classes and from pulpits, that this means God has a tribunal of sorts, where the record books of sins and bad deeds are opened, and he investigates the records to see if there are sins recorded there that the person hasn't had the payment made to, and they remain on the record book that deserve punishment. Inflicted by God for. Do you understand that description is all based on the assumption that God's law works like human law? That's how, that's how, that's. But that's not what the message means. It does not say actually in the message that the hour of God's judicial, tribunal, legal passing of judgments has come. That's an interpretation. It says the hour of his judgment has come. We are to be in awe of him, not, not be terrorized. That's old English fear. Be in awe, revere, be reverent toward, respect, admire God and give him glory. We are to give him glory. We're to reveal his glory because the hour of his judgment has come. The hour in human history when people are to stop judging God to be an imperial dictator who holds a tribunal, who's a source of inflicted pain, who will kill you if you don't love him, and start judging him to be the creator who is exactly like Jesus in character. Stop viewing God as a Roman Caesar and start judging him to be your loving Savior, Creator, Healer, Redeemer. Amen. That's the hour that's come. Paul makes this clear in Romans 3, 4, when he says, this is the New King James Version, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and overcome when you are judged. Let's begin God. Understand the conflict. I've used this example before, but imagine that someone lies about you to your spouse, that you're cheating on your spouse, but you haven't cheated on your spouse. You're loyal, you're faithful. But your spouse is in doubt. Your spouse is fearful and worried because the, the person who lies is close to them. Maybe it's their sibling. They maybe have pictures they've doctored on the computer to make it appear that you've been with somebody else, but you haven't been. You're completely innocent. In that scenario, who is the one on trial? Is it the guilty person on trial in that scenario? Do you want to win your spouse's love and devotion? Do you want to free your spouse from the lies that are being tempting them about you? You do, don't you? And so what do you have to do? Don't you have to, if you're going to win, don't you prove or demonstrate the righteousness of your faithfulness and loyalty to them, and the truth destroys the lies and sets their heart free and reconciles you. In this universe, Satan is a liar. He's lied about God. And God wins by revealing the truth that we investigate and conclude that Satan's a liar and a fraud, and God is loyal and faithful, like Jesus revealed him to be. And we judge him to be always loyal and faithful, always on our side, never, if God is for you, who can be against you? He's never been against us. And as we judge, so will we be judged. Yes, and the same methods we use. And the reason is as we judge, so will we be judged. Why? Because the methods you choose to apply to your heart and how you uh, treat others solidify into your character and become diagnostic for the kind of person you are. This is why we give glory to God by revealing his character. Those principles get solidified into our character, and that's who we become. The plan of salvation starts with the truth about God, which is the eternal good news. This eternal good news about God displaces the lies, wins us to trust. 
In that trust, which is also known as faith, we open our hearts and the Holy Spirit enters. Romans 5, 5, it pours the love of Christ into our hearts and reproduces in us a new character. We're reborn, we're changed, we're transformed, we're renewed, we're recreated. We have the law written on the heart and mind. We are reconciled or brought back into at one minute or unity with God through all that Christ has achieved and done. We love as God loves, and therefore we do not seek to control others, but give ourselves, give ourselves to uplift others and thereby bring glory to God by revealing his character. Thus, the final message that goes to the world is that God's people glorify him in revealing his true character of love because the time has come in human history for God to be rightly judged, to be seen, to be like Jesus revealed him to be. For people to stop worshiping this dictator out of Rome who uses power to burn people at the stake. I mean, think about it, folks. How much of Christianity teaches that God does do just what the Dark Ages power did, except he'll burn them longer? You think I'm making this stuff up? Somebody just handed me this this morning. It's out of a magazine you might have heard of called Adventist Review. 2017 by somebody you might have heard of. He edits this, uh, this somebody named Goldstein. Uh, this was just handed to me. It was not for my notes. It says, talking about the atonement. Of course the atonement is harsh. It's supposed to be. When sinners in the Old Testament brought the innocent lamb to the altar, then slid a knife across its throat until its life drained out in a pool of blood, what was the message? A warm and cuddly God? No. The message was that sin is bad, so deadly. Now listen to this, folks. Listen. That it took the unjust and unfair death of the innocent in order to atone for it, to pay the legal penalty that God's law, the moral background of his universe, demanded. Do you understand what he just said? God's unjust. He he says the, the death of the innocent is unjust, but the only way for God to get justice is to be unjust and kill the innocent, to pay the penalty. Why, why does he say it? Understand, this is the exact outworking of accepting the lie that God's law works like human law. And understand, be sympathetic. If you believe God's law works like human law, you have to believe that justice requires the rule giver to hold accountable and inflict punishment. Because if you don't, then everybody gets away with everything and there's no accountability. And so this is the exact fruit of accepting the lie over God's law. And that's why the third angel's message, the three angels' message, is to call people back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. God's laws are the design laws. The natural heart wants to to find justification and rationalization for what we believe to be right. So when you are presented with things that are absolutely wrong, like all the things that happened to Jesus, when the things that can happen to you from, say, Antifa or from some terrorist or whatever, when, when those things can happen to you, you want to believe that there is a God behind you who says, my law says it's okay for you to survive. Yep, that's the, that's the human way. That's the human right, part. I, I'm going to have to move faster now because we've got the second angel and the third angel to get through. Okay. <laughs> All right, the second angel followed and said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Babylon is the symbolic system of religious imperialism. What's religious imperialism? Using the power of the state to enforce religious dogma and coerce consciences. That's religious imperialism. A system that uses governmental power to, to get... Remember, as soon as Nebuchadnezzar believed in Daniel's God after the fiery furnace, Babylon, head of Babylon... In the Bible, it tells us he immediately made an edict. What was his edict? Anyone who speaks badly about Daniel's God will be put to death. Religious imperialism. Use the power of the state to coerce consciences. That's what Babylon represents in the Bible. This system of religious imperialism became the Roman Christianity with its various canon law, teaching that God's law is like human law. Breaks, uh, breaking it requires punishment and results in the Inquisition and all of the abuses of the Dark Ages church. 
further, it advanced the belief that God's law, like human law, is subject to amendment or change. Human law, which is just made up rules, can be amended and changed. And the Roman church, because they believe that's how God's law works, changed God's law. They deleted the second commandment, made the fourth, the third, split the tenth into two, so we still have the number ten, and changed the day of worship from the seventh to the first. Why did they do that? Because they believe God's law is amenable. It just doesn't, it works like any other human law, made up rules. You saw the bad fires in Canada hitting New York this week, didn't you? Again, I've used this example. Wouldn't it have been nice? Why didn't the church, uh, the Adventist conference up there, pass a a rule in their committee that any Adventists are not required to breathe during bad pollution days? (laughs) I mean, it's a good idea. Because they have no power to change design laws, how reality works. And if you think your church can change God's law, then you don't view it as design law. You view it as simply rules made up like humans make, which require external punishment. So the the message of the second angel... And while Protestants, by the way, have rejected many of the specific changes that the Roman church did, they have never fully thrown off this idea that God's law works like human law. Every single Protestant church, including the Adventist church, as I just read out of this and other places I've documented a few weeks ago, continue to teach that God's law functions like human law, which makes God out the executioner and the source of pain and death that he must be paid in some legal way to not perpetrate upon us. This is Romanism. The message of the second angel is that system of imposed law is fallen. It's corrupt. It doesn't work. That one cannot be made righteous through legal means. Even legal adjustments in record books in heaven does not make a person righteous. A person is made righteous when their hearts are changed and the law is written on their heart and mind. And that's what the, what the substitutionary atonement is truly about. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us. Don't let anybody tell you the lie that Common Reason and Tim Jennings does not believe in substitutionary atonement. You'll hear that a lot. It's a lie. We absolutely believe in substitutionary atonement. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Right there, substitution. But the Bible tells you why. So that we might become the righteous of God. Not so that we might be declared righteous even though we're still unrighteous which is what's taught in the penal legal view, that you accept the payment, it goes into a record book, God declares you to be righteous even though you remain unrighteous. That's a fraud. That's fantasy. That's a lie. That's an alternate, that's a reimagined Christianity. The real Christianity is that when you accept Jesus, you become the righteous. Your heart is transformed. You get a new heart in right spirit. You are changed in their man. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in my record book in heaven. No, in me. That's real Christianity. We become Christ-like. We give glory in how we live because Christ lives in us. It's transformational. So the message of the second angel is that system has fallen. It's corrupt. It doesn't work. The angel calls people to leave Babylon to get out. And it's this portion of the three angels that our lesson focuses on today in Revelation 18, that Revelation 18, the angel of Revelation 18 comes with greater authority than the second angel of Revelation 14 to repeat a message that was supposed to have already been given by the second angel of Revelation 14. Fallen is Babylon. And let's read the message of Revelation 18. The angel that comes to give the message again, which I think is what we're giving right now today. Let's hear what it says. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his, by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become the home of, for demons and a haunt of every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk of the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you may not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. The message is repeated and expanded from the second angel, but with even greater authority than it was first given. We must leave the various systems behind that teach a penal legal theology. It misrepresents God. 
It obstructs the final message of mercy. It keeps people trapped in a fear-based religion in which they have theologies that hide them and protect them from God because if they don't have an intercessor up there pleading a blood to a punishing and wrathful father, then he will hurt them. It's all fraudulent. We have to come back and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. This penal legal punishing God theology conditions minds and hearts of people to accept a God who will use his power to torture and harm and even kill in the name of justice. It is the exact opposite of what Jesus revealed when he was glorified by his father so he could glorify his father. We saw human systems doing all types of injustice and Jesus was glorifying his father by refusing to use power to punish real wrongdoing. But if we embrace the worldly view, there is a impersonator of Christ coming. And he will come with melodious voice, incredible, glorious attributes. Apparently heal the sick, apparently raise the dead. Speak kind words, speak of love, and, and, but he will have rules. And if you don't keep his rules, justice requires. Now, first, he, he only wants to discipline, so he'll just limit your buying and selling unless you receive his mark. And then he'll imprison you. And ultimately, he doesn't want to, but justice requires that if you insist, if you won't be reconciled, if you won't worship him as your creator and God, then justice requires that he has to execute you. That's what justice does. And the whole world is wondering after this. Because that's right, that's right, that sounds right, that sounds right. He gave you a chance, he gave you a chance, he gave you a chance. And if he comes back and says, after all these miracles, these beautiful words, these supernatural manifestations, he says, you know, you Adventists, I appreciate you so much because you were right. I never changed the, the Sabbath, the Sunday. You've been faithful to me. But now it's time to worship me. And he could do it a several, several different ways. Now that I'm here, you've always said that, that you would never worship on another day unless I authorize another day. Well, I'm here to authorize another day now. That's one way. Another way, you could say, you're right, I never did. I'm calling everybody to worship me on Saturday, from Friday sunset to sunset Saturday. But if you don't, I'll be required by law and justice to kill you if you don't worship on the day I made holy. Just like the Jews who crucified Christ to keep the day he made holy. Understand, it isn't about the day, it's what the day represents. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, it represents the Lord, and it's the principles of the Lord that matter. Satan doesn't actually care if you worship on Sabbath if you're willing to crucify Christ to keep the Sabbath. Does he come as a human? Or yes, he will, come, he will come as a human because he will come as Jesus who is still in human form. So he will become impersonating Jesus and Jesus retained his human form. So he will become appearing as the, the glorified human Jesus who is fully divine too. But that's how he'll come. And then the third angel followed and said with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives the mark in his forehead or his hand, we're going to pause right there. This, we, we understand the gospel, the good news about God. He is the creator. His laws are design laws. We understand that Babylon is a, a fallen system of imposed rules. And now we understand these first two. We have to say, what is the reality here? If anyone worships the beast, isn't it? the first reality is the law of worship. It is a design law. The Bible describes it in 2 Corinthians 3.18. By beholding, we are changed. We become like that which we admire, esteem, and worship. In Romans 1, um, Paul says in verse 18 that, um, through 31 that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They preferred images made with their own hands to the truth about God. Uh, they didn't think it was worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. He says it repeatedly in this text, and therefore their minds became dark and depraved and futile. In Jeremiah 2.5, it says they followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. It is a law that we become like that which we admire and worship. This is a design law. We neurobiologically and characterologically change. And so if they worship the beast, they mark themselves in character to be like the beast. And God leaves them to be that way. This is the first law. That's why we are told to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our, our faith. And it says that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We are changed by worshiping the true God as Jesus revealed him to be. This is what the first angel called us to do. The first angel called us to reject the lies about God, to return to worship the creator as Jesus revealed him to be. But if we don't accept the eternal gospel, if the eternal good news about God, if we don't accept that, 
if we don't leave the system of imposed Babylonian-type law behind, and we instead prefer the dictator God that, that has rules that he must use power to enforce, then we worship that God and become like that God and mark ourselves in character and behavior, forehead and hand, to be like that God. And then it says, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured out full strength in the cup of his wrath. All those who reject the eternal gospel and mark themselves in character, sealing themselves, hardening their heart, destroying the very faculties that respond to love and truth, receive God's wrath, poured out full strength. No more mercy, no more diluting, no more interfering, no more interceding, no more holding at bay, no more veiling, allowing people to reap full strength what they have chosen. This is God's law of liberty. He sets people free to receive what they've actually chosen, separation from him, the source of life and the protector and the healer and the sustainer. And when they are set free, they are put in the hands of the one they've chosen, God's destructive enemy. This is what happens. In Romans 1, 18 to 31, we just referenced, Paul then says, the wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. That's verse 18. And in the Greek, This is the active present tense. The wrath of God is today, right now, being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men. And he goes and describes why. Because they reject the truth about God. And in verse 24, 26, and 28, Paul tells you three times what God's wrath functionally is, what God actively does. Therefore, God gave them up. Therefore, God gave them up. Therefore, God gave them up. I'm going to read to you a commentary explanation from a book called Hard Sayings of the Bible, published by InterVarsity Press, on these, on these verses. The human condition which Paul describes in Romans 1, 18-32 is not something caused by God. The phrase revealed from heaven, where heaven is a typical Jewish substitute for the word God, does not depict some kind of divine intervention, but rather the inevitability of human debasement, which results when God's will, built into the created order, is violated. That's design law, built into the created order. Since the created order has its origin in God, Paul can say that the wrath of God is now constantly being revealed from heaven. It is revealed in the fact that the rejecters of God's truth, that is, the truth about God's nature and will, lead to futile thinking, idolatry, perversion of God's intended sexuality, and relational moral brokenness. The expression, God gave them over, or handed them over, which appears three times in the passage, 24, 26, 28, supports the idea that the sinful perversion of human existence though resulting from human decisions, is to be understood ultimately as God's punishment, which we, in freedom, bring upon ourselves. In light of these reflections, the common notion that God punishes or blesses in direct proportion to our sinful or good deeds cannot be maintained. God loves us with an everlasting love, but the rejectors of that love separates us, the rejection of that love separates us from its life-giving power. The result is disintegration and death. I could not have said that better. That's design law. But I know there are a few that may be watching around the circle that are still uncomfortable, even though I've given you Bible reference from Romans 1 and have given a a very good analysis uh, from a a Christian Bible commentary. Um, They would feel more comfortable if we could have an Ellen White quote to support it. So I I will give you an Ellen White quote. And this was actually written uh, to Uriah Smith in the 1890s. He was editor of The Signs at the Times. and uh, he didn't know what to do with it, so he, he filed it and never published it. It was found in the 1950s in the, in the files, in her handwriting, and was published in the Selected Messages. Notice what it says. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character, and makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin... Men separate themselves from God, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. Notice, that's design law. You tie a plastic bag over your head, and you, and you fight every intervention that would take it off and put you back in harmony with the law of respiration, and you are left to your own and set free to reap what you've chosen. It's ruin and death. That's what happens when we break God's design law. I've got I to keep going. The message of the third angel continues. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. Okay, so that was, we saw 
law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. And if we worship the wrong thing and harden ourselves, God sets us free. And the law of liberty. And what do we reap? We reap this terrible destruction that comes um, by being uh, separated from the source of life by our own choices. He will be tormented with burning salt from the presence of the holy angels of the Lamb. We have seen that the, third, uh, that the two messages are, are, are about reality and so now, what is this business about burning sulfur? The Old Testament prophet Isaiah starts our insight into this. Notice in Isaiah 33, verse 14. The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with the everlasting burning? And he answers the question. Who dwells? Who dwells? Verse 15, very next verse. He who walks righteously and speaks what is right and rejects gain from extortion and keeps his hand from accepting bribes, who stops his ears against plots of murder and shuts his eyes against contemplating evil. In other words, the righteous dwell in the consuming fire, not the wicked. When I first read this, it exploded my entire thinking. It did not make sense, does not compute. I went to about 10 or 15 different translations, read them all, checked out the Hebrew. This is exactly what the inspired prophet wrote. Then I had to dig through my whole Bible, and as I went through my whole Bible, I actually found something quite interesting. When Moses talked to God at the bush, what is the bush described as doing? Burning, but it didn't get consumed. When God came down to Sinai, his presence is described in the text as a consuming fire, but the mountain did not melt. When Solomon's temple was dedicated, the priests couldn't enter the day of the dedication because the brightness of God's glory was too bright, but the building did not burn down. Before Lucifer's fall... It's described in Ezekiel 28 that he walked among, quote, the fiery stones of God's presence. Uh, In Daniel chapter 7, 9 and 10, it says that God takes his throne and rivers of fire come out from before him. And 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands are standing in this fire, but they're not suffering. Hebrews plainly tells us our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 29. Song of Solomon states, now listen to this, it's amazing. Love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. Interesting. The lie that Satan has foisted upon us is this. The place you don't want to go and the place you don't want to be is the place of eternal burning and consuming fire, and that place is God's very presence. The righteous are transformed as Moses, 40 days in God's presence on the mountain, still in a sinful body that did die later, but... 40 days in God's presence, when he comes down off that, what's his face doing? <laughs> Glowing something. Now, did Moses have third-degree burns? Did his whiskers catch fire? But when the, when the children of Israel saw him, what did they do? They, they, they shrank back. It caused them pain. And he had to veil his face. The reflected, fiery glory of God on the face of Moses, harming him not at all, is causing pain to the children of Israel. Now, this is very interesting. And then another one, and I'll just say it to you. When Moses came down off the mountain, did he come with anger and wrath and hostility, or did he come with love for his people? When Jesus comes again at the second coming, he will be coming in his fiery glory. His face will be, but just like those worshipers of the golden calf shrank back from that loving face of Moses, they will beg for the mountains to fall on them. Same thing, same dynamic happening. But here's the one that's really kind of a nail in the coffin of all this. Um, and that is uh, Leviticus 10, 1 through 5, this fire stuff. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses summoned Mishael and Eliphaz, sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, Come here, carry your cousins outside the camp, away from the front of the sanctuary. So they came and carried them, still in their tunics, outside the camp. I hit you with a flamethrower and burn you till you die, will you still be in your clothing? Get your mind around this. This fire is not combustion. Yes? There's a chapter in Ezekiel that talks about this river of feeling that just keeps coming, and it's like, it's like rivers and rivers of God's fires of love. Love that just keeps coming and keeps coming. Nothing can stop it. It comes in flood proportion. Love. That's it. It's the, so this fire is the fire of God's life-giving glory 
And it says in Revelation 14.10 that they're tormented with burning sulfur. The Greek is theon, T-H-I-O-N, from where we get the, uh, it's, a, it's a form of the word theos, T-H-I-O-S. Theos, if you study theos, you're studying God, you're studying theology. So theon is the divine fire or the fire of God's presence. And notice what the text actually says. Tormented with theon, burning salt, in the presence of the holy angels and the lamb. Where does the fire take place? In Jesus' presence. This is it. His life-giving glory. Fully read, he comes back in Thessalonians. And what does it say when he returns? They will be destroyed by the brightness. brightness of his coming. This is what the Bible teaches. This is not an infliction. And then it says, the smoke of their torment arises forever and ever. Smoke is what is left after something is burned. This smoke is symbolic of memory. The lessons learned of what unremedied sin does to sinners. Unremedied sin torments and destroys. This lesson will never be forgotten by the universe. Forever and ever, we will always remember what happened on planet Earth and what Christ achieved for us and why the wicked were ultimately lost in the end because they refused to, to be reconciled and have the fires of God's love and truth burn through them and heal them. So the message of the three angels in summary. If you reject the eternal good news about God and his design laws of love, truth, and liberty and choose to worship the dictator counterfeit instead of our creator who made the heavens and the earth and the fountains of water, if you refuse to leave Babylon, the imposed legal system of imposed punishments behind and instead continue the penal legal theologies, then through the law of worship, you will become like that false God and mark yourself beastly. Through the law of liberty, God will set you free and you will reap what you have chosen. Through the law of truth and love, you will suffer the full torment of what unremedied sin does when you come in the presence of infinite truth and infinite love. Your self-deception and lies and denial and distortion won't work. You have full awareness of the corruption of your own character and the harm that you've caused others. And the history of this great controversy, the truth about God and what Jesus accomplished along with all the choices of every person will always be remembered and the universe will be secure for all eternity. Do you see the glory of God in all of this? Yeah. And it's also why the sinners will also say that God is right. Yep, because reality is what reality is. And God is the God of reality. He's not the God of the reimagined. When you hear that in the society, folks, let's reimagine. Okay? There's reality and there's imagination. We can use imagination to have metaphors, but metaphors are only metaphors if they're tied to reality and enlighten us about reality. If we disconnect metaphors and symbols from reality, it becomes fantasy. Fantasy is the domain of Satan. That's fraud. And what you see happening in the world, they want people to reimagine. Reimagine what human sexuality is, what male and female. Reimagine. Reimagine. The interesting thing, Tim, is that those who do not want to accept what you just suggested accuse you of that, exactly that. You just reimagined God in your image. So he said that people accuse me of reimagining. They can make accusation, but I didn't base this off of my imagination. I took you through scripture and gave you evidence after evidence after evidence. And I also have the design laws, testable laws of God that are provable and demonstrable and reproducible the law of love and how it works, and I've shown you that. The law of liberty, how it works. The law of worship and how it works. These testable design laws of God are also confirming and evidence-based. They don't have any of that. In, fa- in fact, the imposed law violates the laws of God. In fact, um, when you go to the imposed law view, it's, I love you. I only want you to love me. But if you won't love me, I will use power to kill you or torture you, whichever version of Christianity you have, because that's how much I love you. Do you understand that immediately is a violation of the law of liberty? Love only exists in real freedom. And their view, and this is why I've, I've actually asked multiple over the years, let's have a public discussion on the two of you. They will never do it because theirs cannot hold up to actual biblical evidence and testable laws. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you so much that you are the creator God who built reality to operate in harmony with your character of love, that you are truth. You are love. You are freedom. And we find only our our health, happiness, and station 
in harmony with you. We ask that your spirit will take the victory of Christ, reproduce it in us, write your living law upon our hearts and minds that we can give you glory at this time in history by living out your methods that you can be rightly judged and many, many millions more will come to your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. (laughs) Now we have a special announcement. Francesca, please come up. Some of you may or may not know, but our ministry, a little history here, started as a Sabbath school class in 2004 at the University Church. And over the course of years, it grew and grew and grew. And in 2010, we incorporated and became a a not-for-profit 501c3 non-denominational Christian ministry. And then we worked with volunteers until 2016, and we hired Francesca in 2016 to be our first full-time employee to help us. And Francesca has done so much for us over the years, and we appreciate her so much. And then this year, Francesca is now full-time mothering. I'm actually hopeful that at some point in the future that we might find some activities that would work for Fran and her her schedule. But we want to give Fran this recognition. It says, Francesca Brewster, Administrative Director, 2016 to 2023, with love and appreciation, thank you for your faithful service, Come and Reason Ministries. Yeah, thank you. And, and as you know, after, after we do our Q&A time, we're going to have potluck, and there's a special cake, celebratory cake, and please spend time and visit and let Fran know how much you appreciate her and what she's done for us. Thank you. Well, thank you.